Welcome to And The Nominee Is, an Oklahoma podcast with a twist. Hi, I'm Julie Clemens, and I'm your host. So here's how it works. Each guest has been nominated by a previous guest. All of the guests have a connection to Oklahoma, whether they've just visited here, they work here, or they live here. This keeps the podcast fresh, fun, and right here in Oklahoma. Now you know. So let's get started. I am so proud to have Kim Tihi on and the nominee is today. You were uh, nominated by James Pepper Henry. And I tell you what, that was such a great podcast with him. He's such an intelligent individual and really uh, gave me a per- different perspective on the Cherokee tribe, on all kinds of tribes, though, with the new museum going in. So um, roundabout way of saying thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Kim. My pleasure. So uh, let's start out. I'm going to kind of start um, present moment, go backwards, and then we'll we'll come forward again. So just letting everyone know who you are, those that don't know. So you are a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, as am I. So proud to say that. Um, the director of the relations for the Cherokee Nation and senior vice president of the government relations Cherokee Nation's businesses. Um, before this, you served as a partner for the Washington, D.C.-based federal advocacy group representing Indian tribes and tribal organizations. You were the first senior policy advisor for Native American affairs in the White House Domestic Policy Council under former President Barack Obama. And now you're working on your current role that has you in the news all over the place. You are the Cherokee tribe's first delegate to the United States House of Representatives. You just don't have anything going on, Kim. (laughs) he keeps me hopping for sure (laughs) absolutely so let's go way back so you were you were born in chicago um your parents moved to claremore because they had jobs in the claremore indian hospital is that correct well first of all my parents are both from stillwell oklahoma oh okay they're both uh cherokee first language speakers meaning they spoke cherokee before they spoke english and they're fluent in Cherokee. My dad actually used to teach Cherokee. Uh, They both attended Sequoia High School. Uh, My mom graduated from Sequoia High School. Uh, They grew up on their land allotments. I mean, my my life story is so intertwined with federal policy. Of course, living through it as they did and as those of my family did before them, they didn't, didn't realize they were living through federal policy. But what took us to Chicago is uh, an opportunity for my dad. Uh, it's a federal relocation program and the, another federal program designed to acculturate Indians, take them out of rural settings and put them into mainstream society. I often say I was a product of relocation and uh, it's the, the, the program, but also of its failure because the relocation program highly underestimated the attachment that Native Americans have to their communities. So as a result of living in Chicago for 10 years, as my parents did, uh, they moved back to Oklahoma to raise my brother and me uh, in, in, um, many years ago. So that's how we ended up in Chicago, and that's why we came back. So let's stop at the language for a second. So uh, you're fluent, I assume, in the Cherokee No, I'm language. not fluent. Oh, you're not? <laughs> I am not fluent. I am oh. not fluent. You, you consider the fact that 
um, you know, parents going to boarding school where, uh, uh, where the students are encouraged to speak English. You know, my mom often says that Sequoia, it didn't help you to speak Cherokee because so many students were from so many other tribes. And she's got a little nugget, a gold nugget there because she can speak several bits and pieces of different tribes languages, which, you know, she knows how to say hello, goodbye in several, several languages. Um, um, but, but in addition to that, you know, my dad also struggled to learn English and he didn't want his kids struggling to learn uh, English the way, uh, the way he struggled to learn it. And uh, he also just didn't want to put an impediment to uh, our growth in mainstream society either. I think that's a common thing that they have in common with their generation of Cherokee speakers and why the language wasn't passed down like it should have been. So I, I speak probably equivalent to the way a five-year-old speaks English to put, it, <laughs> put that in context. I used to give my, my grandpa Tihi, um, uh, used to humor him to hear me butcher the language because rather than correct me and teach me the right way, he, he got great enjoyment out of listening to, <laughs> listening to me struggle and say things wrong or say things incorrectly. I, I do the same thing. I'm, I'm trying to teach myself. It's a challenging language. It really is. I'm not good. I don't have any, any experience with a second language at all. And so I was thinking, oh, Cherokee would be a great second language. Oh, it's not. It's so hard to learn, <laughs> but I'm still working on it. Still working mm -hmm. on it. All right. So you were a member of the Cherokee Nation Tribal Youth Council. Was that in high school? Uh, it was in, it was actually the second ever uh, Tribal Youth Council at Cherokee Nation, uh, dating myself uh, back to the Stone Ages. Uh, <laughs> and I was in college, I believe, when I was on the Tribal Youth Council. Youth within the Cherokee Nation is defined a little broadly. <laughs> you know? yeah, right. Exactly. You've got young adults over 18 years of age who are participating in youth um, activities. Uh, so I was I was on the, the second ever Youth Council of the Cherokee Nation. That's correct. That's incredible. And so you worked for the Cherokee Nation um, right out of college. Is that correct? While I was in college, I became a summer youth intern participating in the summer youth internship program. Again, a program that's designed for not just youth, right? right. I think up to 24 years of age, in fact. And so people, wow. you know, I'm known, I'm known as Wilma Mankiller's former intern and people think I was maybe 16 years old. I was in college when I was her intern and while I was going to college um, and I became her intern and that internship turned into a um, an actual position with her office. And so I gave up um, going to the University of Arkansas in order to work directly out of her office while I attended the local university at Northeastern State University. And that was the best decision I made, I think. Well, that actually leads me to my next question about Wilma Mankiller and um, your internship. So I read that she was pretty much your mentor. Is that, is that correct? And that, Absolutely so correct. Yes. tell me about that experience. So what did you what did you learn from her that you're applying today in your life? Um, a lot of things. Uh, Wilma, at the time that I was her intern, was already at the height of her fame. And what I learned from her was to treat everyone with dignity and respect and to treat everyone equally. Um, she had a great appreciation for hard work. She was also uh, very aware that people just wanted to be in her presence because she was famous. And she never said in this out loud, but I 
absolutely got the sense that if you were not contributing to a discussion that she was having, then you didn't need to be in the room with her. Uh, and she had no patience for that. You know, she always wondered, why is so-and-so here? You know, because sometimes people just wanted to be in her presence. Right. And that she didn't play the game. You know, you had to contribute. That happened, that happened to be how it was being her intern. Uh, I wasn't just there to be an intern and to go get coffee. I would, she would substantively have me contribute by research, writing, you know, um, drafting things. And she would give me input into things. She had horrible handwriting. Anybody <laughs> that knows her can attest to that. And she wouldn't rewrite something for me, but she would give me her thoughts about her style and I would rewrite. And I loved it. She would send me on research uh, missions and, uh, and such and um, have me um, sit in meetings with her and she would ask me a question. I remember one time she asked me a question that I wasn't prepared for her to ask me and I was in a room full of people and I couldn't think quickly enough. And she went on to the next person. And oh. I realized I realized I missed my moment. But I also was so stunned that she would even care what I thought in an actual meeting because I was I was just an intern. And so that never happened to me again. Yeah. <laughs> never in every meeting that I ever attend, my goal is to if I'm in a meeting, it's because I believe I have a role to play in that meeting. And I'm not going to be bashful about speaking up about what it is and, and whatever it is it is I have to contribute is going to be substantive. And so I learned that I learned to have a uh, to feel a responsibility toward mentoring young women, especially. She felt a very, very uh, firm commitment toward young women and lifting young women up in their careers. Uh, she also urged me to go to law school. She knew that uh, that courts were starting to make decisions that were making it more difficult for tribal governments. Um, to govern in certain circumstances, that the states were starting to um, sue based on states' rights versus tribal rights. And, and the findings of those decisions were getting a little bit more complicated and that having a law degree could help me. You see, she felt it was very important to have advisors, but it was even more important for her as a leader to own every decision that she makes. And advisors' role are simply that, to advise, whether it's legal advice, policy advice, political advice, she owned every decision that she ever made and it didn't always it didn't always you know it wasn't always consistent with what maybe advisors wanted and that's okay because it was her decision right. and so she so i i learned that early on from her about taking advice you know and um and there's nothing wrong with advice but at the end of the day you've got to own your decisions you got to defend your decisions you got to advocate and be able to explain your decisions and that's what she taught me um, as well. And so I owe a, a lot to her to uh, give me give me those tools that were necessary in order to uh, feel like I could adequately uh, step into any situation and uh, defend my position, to advocate for a position, to press on with the position because of what I learned from her, lessons I learned from her. And I was exposed to some of her famous friends, you know, Gloria Steinem, um, Alice Walker, you know, different people in her life would come here and I got to see how she interacted and engaged with people who are famous. You know, I often thought being her intern, I had to be so serious and, and I am a serious personality, but I would see her get goofy with her girlfriends. And that was important for a young professional to see somebody who was just, you know, a female, you know, who was commiserating with uh, fellow, her fellow girlfriends and a real person uh, brainstorming and Absolutely. A real person. It, it humanized her to me. And I also got to see how she was such a deep thinker beyond Indian affairs. 
You know, she also engaged in social activism, civil rights, women's rights, uh, equity issues, and uh, and and she brainstormed about these things. She had an interest in writing and poetry and such. She had wide ranging interests that she fed and that she talked to with with her girlfriends. And together they had ideas. And I saw ideas grow. And you know, she was you know she allowed for opportunity for herself for her creativeness to come out in other ways to brainstorm and to do things greater than the position that she held. And she taught me how to dream big too. Wow. She taught you a lot of things. I can just see it. It's just pouring out from your heart and soul, <laughs> how much she meant to you and oh, yeah. uh, how much okay. she taught you. So it's, it's wonderful. And I'm sure you're passing that along too. I've heard so many wonderful things about you and what a strong woman you are. And which leads me on to the next thing you're in the headlines. I feel like everywhere. <laughs> so, um, let's, let's move forward with this. So as the, um, Cherokee tribes, first delegate to the United States House of Representatives, which I think it sounds so wonderful. For those who don't know the backstory and why this is so important, will you please tell the story and, and why you're fighting to be where you are? Sure. So very briefly, uh, in the 19th century, the relationship between the United States and Cherokee Nation was pretty rocky. Uh, there was great pressure put on the United States to uh, enter into treaties with Indian tribes. Uh, in order to uh, get the land uh, and then to move tribes um, west. Why was that happening? Well, westward expansion, discovery of gold, discovery of cotton, various um, uh, those, those various reasons. And so uh, this is around the 1830s Indian Removal Act. Congress passed this law uh, that, that, that paved the way for these kinds of agreements to happen. Uh, Georgia was putting a lot of pressure on, on the United States uh, to move the Cherokees and uh, out of the way, we fought removal in the U.S. Supreme Court. We prevailed in the U.S. Supreme Court even uh, with infamously a, a, a statement is attributed to Andrew Jackson, uh, where he said John Marshall, who was the chief justice of the Supreme Court at the time, made his decision. Um, now let him enforce it. Knowing that the U.S. Supreme Court at that time had very little enforcement authority and knowing that they uh, couldn't enforce their decision, but Andrew Jackson, then as president, uh, could enforce the decision. So what happened is, uh, uh, is an illegal faction of Cherokee Nation negotiated a treaty, the removal treaty of the Cherokee Nation, the Treaty of New Echota, which the Senate, the U.S. Senate ratified in which the president of the United States, Andrew Jackson, signed into law. That's why it's considered the supreme law of the land today. The implementation of that treaty, right? Uh, it, the implementation of that treaty was uh, the result of that is we gave up about seven million acres of land in the east, and what the United States did is it forced the removal of our citizens from the east to uh, today Oklahoma, where a quarter of our population uh, perished on that trail, mostly elders and, and children. Uh, included in that removal treaty is a provision that is mandatory language it's 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 expressed in that it says it is stipulated that Cherokee Nation shall be entitled to a delegate in the U.S. House of Representatives whenever Congress shall make provision for the same uh, that is a a provision that has never been implemented it is also a provision that is still valid today there's no expiration date on that on on that law and 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 as we talk about delegate there's often a discussion that accompanies it which is why now why do we wait so long to do it well if you look at what happened at removal, the bad stuff didn't end there. Throughout the 19th century, Congress kept acting law after law after law 
that really uh, dismantled the way that we could govern ourselves, even taking away our authority to um, elect our own principal chief. It wasn't until 1970 that Congress once again gave us back the legal authority to elect our own principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. And so, and, and, and in the mid 70s, around 75, that Congress finally started deploying resources, much needed resources, uh, to, so that we could start tending to the needs of our communities. You know, that's when you see, you know, the uprise of Wilma Mankiller's generation. And mm -hmm. she was doing community development projects. She was getting federal dollars in to help with water lines in our communities, infrastructure needs, healthcare, housing, education needs. All of these things were starting to come together with, with um, with regard to resources being deployed out to Indian country in the mid 70s. And uh, so if you think back at how long it took for us to rebuild a nation, to address those things, these things happened in my lifetime, right? That we feel that we are finally in the place uh, where we can actually assert a treaty right today, that we feel we've got, that we're, we've got our feet under us, that we've got stability all around, that we're tending to the needs of our citizens, which are many, but we also <laughs> have the ability to assert a treaty right. Uh, and that it's time now to get it done because now that treaty right is nearly 200 years old and we're trying to get it done this year. Finally, right? <laughs> Correct. Yes, finally. So the delegate would not be able to vote on the passage of bills through the chamber, right? So I guess some would ask, so then why are we making so much effort with this if, if your vote isn't heard? So let's keep in mind what delegates can do in the House. Okay. Uh, the delegate authorities that we're seeking are similar to uh, the U.S. territories delegates that exist today, uh, which means that delegates in the House of Representatives uh, get to serve on committee, they get to vote in committee, they get to introduce legislation, speak on the legislation, amend committee, they just cannot vote for final passage. And that's the legal distinction between a delegate and a representative of the House. So just by that description, there is still a lot that can be done to address the needs of the Cherokee Nation. And my constituent um, because the treaty is between the Cherokee Nation and the United States, government to government, my constituent is Cherokee Nation, the tribal government. And so my, I, I get my marking orders from the, from the elected leaders of the nation. And so how many, um, there's other places, right? I want to say other countries that have a delegate as well. So there are two other, tri two other treaties in the United treaties, States yes, okay. that, that deal with um, having a delegate. Ours is by far the most clear. And um, but there is a treaty with the Delaware uh, in 1778, and there's an 1830 treaty that uh, pertains to both the Choctaw and Chickasaw. Oh, okay. But that's the universe, to our knowledge, of treaties that are out there. So there's no floodgate that will open up here either. Okay. And so one of the items on your agenda I was reading will be ensuring that federal funds don't stop flowing to the Cherokee Nation every time there's a government shutdown. So you were talking about just kind of like what Wilma Mankiller was trying to do, right? Or was doing. So you're yeah, just trying to continue that flow. You know, and, 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 and to be a part of the body that can actually make decisions and make those things happen. Right. And so, um, you know, you just talked about uh, funding. That's a huge issue for us, advanced appropriations. This is something that has bipartisan support and is going on right now. It's something that we've been pushing for for a very long time. We actually believe there should be mandatory funding, but we'll take advanced funding. What advanced funding means is that uh, there is an extra year of funding that's available to the tribe for a particular purpose uh, so that in the event of a government shutdown, for example, there's no disruption of that service. So what we're looking at today is uh, by, as is advanced appropriation in the Indian Health Service space, so that 
for those tribes who receive Indian Health Service dollars, you get two fiscal years worth of funding. And the reason that matters is we're actually in that situation right now. Congress has routinely passed continuing resolutions to fund the, feder the federal government. And, and we continue to face those uh, continuing resolutions coming up to an expiration date. We're facing that right now. And, uh, and we continue to think, uh-oh, shutdown is looming. Well, what that means to tribes is you got to start making contingency plans if in the event that there is a shutdown and start you know, putting, directing dollars in another way so that you're ready for the, for the event in, the, in, in case there's a federal shutdown to redeploy those dollars. And so it's very disruptive of tribal government. Uh, it creates uncertainty. And what we're trying to do is create some stability and certainty with federal dollars, especially in the area of Indian healthcare. But I think over time, it should also include public safety and other, other areas where tribes rely on those dollars heavily. So um, other than the federal funding, which is a, a huge deal and you want to keep that flowing, is there anything else on your agenda? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, governments <laughs> are, you know, have cross-cutting nature of things, right? We've got housing, we've got public safety, education, uh, infrastructure, agriculture issues, but also we've got things that pertain to us uniquely as Cherokee Nation. You know, we have taken on a great effort. We talked earlier about language to preserve and protect our language. We've put significant tribal resources and used our federal resources to build a Durban Feeling Language Center at Cherokee Nation that will house all of our language programs of which there are like 14, I think now. And uh, we also have a bill pending in Congress called the Durban Feeling Native American Languages Act that would allow uh, a review of the language programs and to uh, and, and, and allow for an enhancement of the resources out to tribes. And so we're hoping that that bill uh, will go through Congress uh, um, soon. Uh, if not, then I hope that I'll be there to pick it up next year. Yes, me too. So, um, so House votes every two years. Does that mean that you could possibly lose this seat in two years? How does that work? So my term runs concurrent with the principal chief. Okay. And so, which is a four-year term, right? Okay. And uh, and if the House votes by resolution to uh, bring me into the body, then the House would probably have to vote on that every two years. Okay. So I know Democratic um, U.S. Representative Jim McGovern said that he hopes, and this was in November, he hopes to establish mm -hmm. the seat as quickly as possible, potentially by year's end. Well, we're right now recording this the second mm -hmm. week of December. So are you optimistic that this is going to happen by the end of the year? You know, we're hoping, we're pushing, you know, we, we want it to happen. It's It's been nearly 200 years. We've had a hearing. We've had extensive conversations, research, you know, um, meetings back and forth. And I think it's time. I think the stars are aligned to make it happen. So I'm optimistic. So is this, um, it's just now waiting game, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ah! There's a lot on the plate. I mean, one of which is, you know, dealing with the continuing resolution. <laughs> right. So what is your first step? So when you hear the news, I mean, are you already, are your bo boxes already packed? Are you ready to go? <laughs> yeah, I'm in DC a lot. So I feel like I, I always have one foot out the door already. You know, first step is, you know, uh, honestly, I'm I'm I, I'm come I come from a prayerful family. So the first step would be with my family, uh, giving all the praise and glory to our Creator, and um, and then going going to work. 
Oh, that's wonderful. It's It's been such a pleasure having you um, on the podcast. Now, I, I know, I don't know if you have one, but um, this podcast continues to flow on the nomination system. So do you happen to have someone in mind that you would like to nominate for me to talk to? Sure. I actually have a colleague that I think would be wonderful on this show. Her name is Jennifer Lauren, and she runs the Cherokee Nation Film Office. Uh, my my department, Government Relations, worked hand in glove with her to get uh, an increase in the, the film tax credit in Oklahoma. And we've got a remarkable film office now and a soundstage uh, and have done some wonderful things uh, because of her and have won numerous Emmys based upon the programming that she has overseen, uh, you know, with, through the film office. And so I think she would be a wonderful addition to your show. I know who she is. She used to be on Channel 6 here in Tulsa, yes. right? Yes, she did. Yep. Oh, she Fellow yes, she's, she's mm-hmm. fabulous. Well, I want to end with a quote here. And um, it reminded me, um, this quote from you sounds like it uh, came from your soul because it's very similar, I think, to something that Wilma uh, Mankeller would say. So it says, um, it always stuck to me how important and how good it makes one feel to be in public service. When you serve something bigger than yourself, you always have that in the forefront of your mind, and it compels you to be kind and to treat everybody with dignity and respect. And That's dignity absolutely. and respect is, um, it, it's you, it is, it's Kim Teehee. And I thank you so much for being thank on you. my podcast today. It's been a privilege, it's been a pleasure and an honor, and I, I, I'm just so excited thank about you. it, and I'm, I'm excited absolutely. to see you on the news again and on your way to Washington, D.C. and representing our wonderful Cherokee Nation. I can't think of anyone else to do a better job. I appreciate you so much. Thanks for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of And the Nominee Is. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.